Hey, listeners, have you checked out Slate's new audio bookstore yet? Now you can buy the latest bestsellers directly from Slate. The Slate store is truly a better way to buy audiobooks. There are no subscription fees. There's no standalone app to download. When you buy from Slate, you get your books seamlessly delivered to your preferred podcast app, the same place you're hearing this show. For me, somebody like me who just can't stand having to deal with another app, that is a game changer. My big problem with listening to audiobooks is I always have to like track down the app and try to find a way to listen to it. This makes it all seamless, all in one place. And plus, every purchase you make supports the distinctive independent journalism at Slate you depend on. And you get great books from people I know and like. And one book you can get at the store is, listen, Emily Bazelon. Emily Bazelon happens to be on the Zoom call elsewhere doing something else. But her book charged... The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration is one of the books you can get at the Slate Bookstore. Emily's book is about the justice system in America, the places where justice falls short, and the revolution in how prosecutors are treating certain kinds of accused criminals and actual criminals. It's a fantastic book. And if you know Emily, and you do, because you listen to the Gap Fest, you know how smart and brilliant and incisive and fun and heartfelt this book it will be. It is all of those things. So go get charged from the Slate Audio Bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of this episode, and you will even hear a special excerpt of Charged. But to buy the book right now, just go to slate.com slash gabfestbooks. Use promo code EMILY before December 1st to save an additional 20%. That's slate.com slash gabfestbooks. Use promo code EMILY. That's E-M-I-L-Y. That's how you spell EMILY. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 18th, 2021, the Nojo Mojo edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. John Chuckling, unknowably, mysteriously chuckling. John Dickerson of CBS The Sunday Morning. Hello, John. Well, no, I was just, I was chuckling in in uh, applause of your very good title. And I oh, think people you. should lend their serious ears to uh, what, you, what, what you unfolded there. Thanks. Thank you very much. This week, we will talk about Joe's lack of mojo. Joe Biden's sinking approval ratings. What do they mean? Then the bad guys are winning. A truly depressing story in the new Atlantic magazine. We will dig into what is happening around the world, whereby the bad guys are winning. Why are they winning? Then we're going to talk to the brilliant writer Jay Caspian Kang about his new book about Asian Americans and other things as well. Plus, we're going to have cocktail chatter. John, what has happened to President Biden's popularity and when did it happen? Well, the his popularity was, you know, above 50 percent, and which is in today's politics was pretty good all the way through the summer. Basically, the lines crossed between approval and disapproval. I'm using the 538 um, aggregate polls. They cross in the end of August. Um, and the contributing factors are, and they start, it's, he starts his decline in July. The contributing factors are both, um, and we don't know what in what measure, but the contributing factors are both acute and longstanding. So there's the withdrawal from Afghanistan that um, was bad for the administration. There is the, the initial excitement over the fact that it, it appeared COVID-19 was, was waning, that vaccinations were up. Then you have Delta, um, which is a big, you know, a, a big swarm that doesn't go away. Then you have the economic results of uh, of the coronavirus rising inflation. And so prices are going up at the, at the pump and in uh, consumer goods. So you have uh, that contributing to the fact that basically between the end of July, he has an approval rating of 52%, and it's now at about 43%. It's been compounded recently by a kind of what feels like a pylon since the elections of a couple of weeks ago. Emily, there's also this underlying theme that he himself is not doing a very good job communicating what's happening in his administration hasn't uh 
he's that he's 79. He turned 79 this weekend. Happy birthday. And uh, that he has been not full of vim and vigor. He's not a particularly effective communicator. The administration has not been making a great case that it's doing a lot that's wonderful. And therefore, people just don't have anything to rally behind. And that he himself is not somebody people want to rally behind because he's just not a kind of an exhortative, exciting figure. Yeah, I wonder about some of that. I mean, it feels a little like exactly what pundits would say, right? right? And I wonder if there's <laughs> another. <laughs> yeah, well, no, right? I agree. Like, I mean, sure. it, yeah. he's, his approval rating is dipping, so he must not be doing a good job communicating. I personally feel that he seems like kind of absent, but then maybe that's because I'm not paying attention and watching zero television and don't really care about his pronouncements. So maybe he's like super present. And I feel like in the past when I've had these instincts, John has come in and been like, well, actually, no, they're talking about that constantly. It's just that they can't like rise above the noise. You know, some of the measures that Biden's falling on, like leadership, communication, these seem also like things that, you know, his enemies in the conservative media have been attacking him on. And so it would be kind of easy to deflate him on those measures. But I mean, I guess I wonder if the Democrats are stuck in this moment where COVID doesn't seem like it's quite over they still, in some ways, seem like hyper cautious to me. I mean, Tony Fauci said this week, until we're under 10,000 cases, we can't go back to a degree of normal. I mean, that just seemed like a barometer that who knows if we'll ever achieve it. Um, it made me feel kind of hopeless. And then there's inflation and these kinds of questions about the health of the economy and people's worries about that. And all the like forever, forever backbiting and sniping over the negotiations over infrastructure and the Build Back Better bill. And maybe all of that just adds up to this like not very encouraging picture. And then you just blame it on the president because he's the president. Right. That's a big part of it, which is that, I mean, there are three ways, I think, to think about presidential approval. One is he made bad decisions that made things be bad. Then there is things are bad and it's a president's job to fix them and his solutions are awful. Um, so he's played a bad hand badly. And then the third is, um, and some of this is gas prices. And I mean, so, then there's a third category, which is you just happen to be in office when bad things are happening and you don't have a, have a whole heck of a lot of control over them. Inflation is probably a better example, although you can make the case that the that the final stimulus that Biden presided over, while it gave tremendous relief to people, contributed to the inflation that's now that now exists. I mean, and obviously some Democratic um, economists from Jason Furman to uh, Larry Summers have made that case. So I don't know. So now having put it in that category, I might take it back out. But anyway, there's the other part that's what you're saying, Emily, which is you're just stuck with it. For me, the question is, if you look at the way the infrastructure bill, and this is more of a press question, maybe. I mean, this is the largest infrastructure bill in 70 years. It is what people say they want, which is bipartisan agreement on things that are important to them. It also deals with long-term problems, which legislation isn't always so great at handling. Everybody's always focused on what's happening today, but don't think about the future. This actually does do that in a way that's actually going to materially help people's lives, maybe not tomorrow, but down the road. So it's a big deal. What happens when it passes is immediately all the conversation comes to, well, what's going to happen next with the president's social spending bill? So there's no coverage of the thing itself and what it's doing for people's lives. In the old days, Hugh Seide, when I first came to Time magazine, said, you know, the White House has a megaphone and they get to say what they're going to say. And it's our job to be critical and pick it apart. And it balances it out, itself out roughly. But in today's age, where you have a total atomization of media and, and the ability for a White House to say something and to present their argument is quite difficult. In, and you also have, obviously, the rise of an adversarial media that's ideological, not just um, critical. And so does that change the, the job if your job is to create an informed electorate because the informed electorate makes its choices? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's certainly different than you know, 70 years ago when Eisenhower uh, was passing infrastructure in terms of the way people get informed about what's being done in their name. Right. That's a very, I, now all my questions that I was about to ask seem kind of trivial, but I'm going to ask them anyway. Um, Emily, 
because they're just really about political tactics. But I think, John, that's a very profound point. Um, I was reading somewhere, and I and it, I hadn't really thought about this before, but was the Georgia double Senate victory a disaster in disguise for the Democrats? That it, that what the result of having a Democratic majority in the House and Senate and a Democratic president raised expectations of what this administration could accomplish that were unreasonable and that, in fact, they haven't been able to accomplish them nearly as much because uh, they don't have a really a working majority in the Senate that allows them to do anything expansive that, that people want to do. They probably would have gotten an infrastructure bill anyway. They probably would have gotten something. They would have gotten some spent spending bill anyway, um, even with a Senate minority. And with this majority, they just appear to be feckless and impotent. I mean, if that's true, it's on the tab of Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, not the victories in the Georgia Senate races. Um, yeah, I think w one of the problems is that people who should know better, pundits and analysts who rush to the FDR analogies when Biden was elected, should be have their licenses revoked. I mean, nobody's going to pass FDR Do we get style licenses. <laughs> I didn't get a license. Yeah, no, I can barely you get a passport. It allows you to fish in 38 different states as well. So it's, uh, it's really quite useful to have one. Um, anyway, nobody was going to pass any FDR-style programs when you have the thinnest possible margin in the Senate and you have only, you know, a barely larger one in the House. It just isn't going to happen in a big, diverse party in today's politics. Like, the fact this is why infrastructure passing at all is extraordinary. And also, back to this communications thing, I mean, we've talked about this a lot before, but the ability of a president, any president, including the great communicators, Clinton and Reagan, to communicate in certain environments is just impossible. I mean, you just can't do it. It's just a presidential communication when you're pushing against the headwinds of the country uh, just is not that effective terribly effective. In a moment of national tragedy, a president can come in and shape and speak to the country because everybody lends their generous ears to what a president is saying. But if people are just cranky and pissed because we're in the 19th month of a pandemic, you can do pirouettes on the head of a unicorn spike and you're not going to get a lot of uh, people paying attention because they're inflamed and they're angry. And we've seen, as we've talked about before, the people who are in out of power are more inflamed and more angry. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure there is communication good enough uh, to to solve the problem. We should just say quickly, this problem for Democrats on the generic ballot in the Washington Post poll is as bad as it's ever been. It's as good as it's ever been for Republicans. And the generic poll means when you ask somebody, would you vote for a Republican or a Democrat in the House? It's 51-41 Republicans over Democrats. Traditionally, when the numbers are that bad, if you look at the graph uh, that, that takes presidential approval and, and matches it up with the number of seat losses in a non-presidential election year, Biden's approval rating is in the territory of 1994, um, which, as you may all remember, was a historically big year for, um, for Republicans. So um, that's things are... Very bad for Democrats. Well, given that, Emily, given how bad things look, what exactly can Democrats do to both govern better and and enhance their prospects of avoiding total catastrophe in 2022? You know, I'm not sure that the things I think they can do better are going to make the difference in winning or losing, but I think they could communicate much better on education. I mean, the numbers show that people are really turning toward trusting Republicans, not Democrats, or the numbers are almost even when Democrats used to have a big lead. And that just seems like something when we saw coming out of Virginia and the close race in New Jersey and all these school board races that um, in states like Pennsylvania. I mean, that just seems like it's important, even if it doesn't make the difference in the election, to figure out how to meet people where they are on that issue. And then I think Biden has to, I mean, I, I feel so silly saying this because it seems so obvious, and I'm sure smarter people than me in the White House and elsewhere would have more sophisticated things to say, but it seems like Biden needs to get out there with some kind of positive message, some kind of sense that like the country is on the right track and here's what's happening. And some of it should be like, shovels going in the ground for the infrastructure project, but some of it should also be like recovering from COVID and some sense of like 
progress on the pandemic. And I don't mean to be totally Pollyannish about it, but I do feel like there's this sort of extra level of holding back that is starting to just make at least me feel very restless. But Emily, doesn't this go to what John was just saying a minute ago, which is that there are environments where that just doesn't break through, that it's not clear that if Biden started to do a victory tour or a kind of normalizing tour that anyone wants to hear it right now. Right, John? Isn't that your your point? Well, it is. Yeah, it's both my point. And as I've said before, though, you got to do something. Um, so I guess my point would be keep keep expectations low. Um, I mean, it's funny when you read these pieces that say, you know, Democrats think that once the economy gets a little better and a few months pass, you know, people will change their minds. I don't think when people are in a cranky mood, it takes a really long time for them to change their minds because they may be in a cranky mood for different reasons. Also, of course, always keep in mind the electorate we're talking about here. We're talking about an inflamed uh, Republican electorate and a somewhat desultory Democratic electorate. And so what is going to reignite the Democratic electorate? And I think the, the best possible case for the, for the White House is probably not to, to uh, spend any time talking about education because it's a bad issue, complicated place to talk about it. And every minute you're talking about it, you're energizing the other side's voters, as important as the issue is outside of a political campaign. And talk about what they actually have done, which is not just infrastructure, but they passed an, you know, an enormous stimulus bill that helped people weather the end of the pandemic. And if they could get their act together and pass a social spending bill, they could talk about what they're doing for women who uh, are, have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and college and housing and all kinds of other things. And at least try the idea that um, achievements in Washington might pay off again a lot of headwinds, but it's the best thing they've got going. Slate Plus members, you get so much good, great stuff from Slate. You get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. Amazing new season of Slow Burn going on right now with great bonus episodes about the LA riots. And you support the work we do here on the GabFest. And we do bonus segments every week. Those bonus segments are some of the best things that we do. Uh, and they're really fun for us. So you can join by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And today's bonus segment is going to be a question that we called from our conundrum, suggestive conundrums. It's actually my conundrum. I suggested this conundrum, which is who is the most useful kind of friend to have? Is the most useful kind of friend to have a doctor, a billionaire, someone who owns a pickup truck? Uh, We are going to discuss that at slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We turn now to the cover of The Atlantic Magazine, where Anne Applebaum, occasional GabFest guest and a you know, brilliant journalist and commentator, has a new story, The Bad Guys Are Winning. And it's a story that essentially says that liberal democracy, which we won the 20th century, yay, great, we had a great 20th century, is getting, it's getting whacked around, it's getting crushed in the 21st century, because there is a loose alliance of autocrats who are supported by billionaires and supported by propaganda farms. And this loose alliance of autocrats is successfully ruining the world. And they're crushing dissent in places like Belarus and Russia and China and Venezuela. And they're able to do this, not because the world doesn't condemn them, the democratic world doesn't condemn them, but because the condemnation just comes with no teeth and that other people, other bad actors are there to support them. So when the people of Belarus rise against their dictator and the world says, yes, go people of Belarus, throw out your terrible dictator, the Russians 
are like, yeah, whatever. We'll send it. They send in journalists. They send in soldiers, police officers, advisors to figure out how to crush the Belarusian uh, revolution because it's in Russia's interest for Belarus to to continue to be an autocratic country. And there is essentially this this um, murder incorporated global tentacled autocratic network of bad guys, and they range from Erdogan to the governments of China and Russia to Saudi Arabia to Venezuela, you know, other, you know, even in the U.S. flirted with this under Trump or Brazil with Bolsonaro. And it's eroding and defeating liberal democracy. I found this a deeply, deeply depressing Disturbing. story. Uh, Emily, there was this, I think Anne talks about this term impunity, that that the problem is not that people don't know what is going on is wrong or it's not even that they don't even condemn it. It's a, it's condemned. Everyone knows it's wrong and yet they can get away with it. They can act with impunity. Right. I mean, it's like the liberal democracies come in and they impose sanctions and then that opens, that creates economic opportunity for people who don't care about the abuses that are happening. And, and those people rush in to the void and there's like a connected corporate network of them around the world. I mean, I thought part of the genius of this piece was to think of it in terms of incorporated, in terms of business interests, and this idea that in some countries, the leaders of them, you know, people like Maduro, Lukashenko in Belarus, it's not even clear what political ideology or values they stand for. They stand for keeping themselves in power and keeping the people around them rich. And if that's your goal, you can find people help you, you know, get around the sanctions enough to do those things. And then, you know, there's this very poignant moment where Anne is writing about Belarus and the idea that all these people poured out into the streets and it was a ton of people. It was like a million and a half people. In a country of only 10 million. Yes, thank you. And um, and they thought, well, okay, like this is going to make the regime give in. And no, it didn't. It didn't really have any effect. It was like this tidal wave of human anguish and protest, and then it subsided. Um, and that is like really just deeply distressing when you think about what it's like to live in these countries and what the barriers to change are. Just to add one other fact to Anne's piece, that Freedom House, which tracks health of democracy based on the argument that if there are more democracies and democratic practices are healthy, there'll be more people living in freedom. In the last year, they've done this report for many, many years. And in the last year, 18 countries had declines in their democratic scores. Only six countries saw improvement. It was the 17th consecutive year of overall decline, which meant that the number of countries that are designated as democracies is at the lowest point in the history of their doing this report. Um, And so it's not just, you know, so it's a bad picture. And to the extent it keeps getting worse in Anne's argument, there are more places for Autocracy Inc. to find safe harbor because every one of these countries has oligarchs and has business interests that can go around. And I thought the impunity argument was quite helpful too, which is that there's just no conscience. What became so shocking in reading this is you see glimmers of this on the day that House Republicans are not really very bothered about the fact that one of their members put out a video pretending to kill a member of the Democratic Party and that there's just no there's no real. I mean, they haven't said these. This exemplifies the highest standards of our party. But short of that, they they haven't done much. And when you see the overall impunity grow it just gets worse. It impunity never grows and then kind of shrinks away. One thing that I felt that Anne maybe even underplayed was that was China's role in all of this. China is a very interesting force globally because China is not a complete force for ill in the world at all. It's building lots of things. People are get, the people of China have have you know arguably the greatest uh, accumulation of human wealth, the greatest you know, rise in, in human welfare in the history of the world has happened in China in the past uh, 40 years. And the people of China are very supportive generally of the government of China insofar as we have evidence of that. And they're very supportive of what's happening in their country. And there's a huge growth in prosperity and education and, um, and, and this is being exported sort of to the world. Um, but 
the difference between a China rampant in the world and the United States rampant is that China's really willing to do business with anyone, doesn't care who they're doing business with. And as a result, almost any of these bad actors can always find support from China to, you know, dredge their harbor or build the rail line or, you know, do, you know, build the, build the factory or whatever it is, China will finance it if it's, if it's in the economic interest of the Chinese business people that want to do it. And the U.S. had, during the 20th century, the U.S. was more, the U.S. was certainly like U.S. business everywhere, but U.S. business and exporting U.S. values, whereas China is not particularly interested in exporting values to other countries. It's interested in doing business and extracting profit from it. And if if China could be turned to being a better, kind of a better global citizen and say like, you know what, we're not going to do business with Belarus or with, with, uh, with Maduro, maybe some of this dissipates because China is the economic engine driving so much of it. Although they're, they may not be pushing an ideology for themselves, although I think they kind of are, but they're definitely pushing uh, a diminution of the Western ideology. I mean, arguing repeatedly that democracies ain't so great. And, and one of the things that was interesting in that Pew typology poll is the extent to which in the Republican party furthered and supported and really bolstered by a continued argument by Donald Trump that the U.S., really ain't so special that, you know, the U.S. is it doesn't have a right to dictate to other countries because the U.S. has lots of blemishes. Um, that's essentially the Chinese argument. One thing that is interesting about China, David, that you raise is this week when Xi Jinping met with Joe Biden, one of the levers that Biden and the administration think they have, and that it does seem to be true, is that this idea of impunity has a more mixed cast when it comes to China, which is that China really cares about how the world sees it, wants to be considered one of the great powers in all aspects in the world. And so you could see that with um, the Trump administration when they goaded China into trying to help with North Korea. In other words, they said, hey, if you want to be a big player on the world stage, you help us put North Korea in a box. Biden, when he was trying to get China to to, um, participate in the most recent global climate talks, said, you want to be a big fancy nation on the world stage, but you're not really doing your part on this important issue as a way to kind of use that sense of of, um, image to goad them, which is not obviously something that does anything to move the Belarusians or the Russians. Emily, I'm interested in your thoughts on how much of this autocracy inc is a function of the way the internet and and mass communication works in the internet age and the ability of the bad guys to have harnessed it i think there was this fantasia in the early days certainly during the arab spring oh that the internet is this tool for democracy and is tools for spreading spreading freedom and as our former colleague will dobson wrote in this book the dictator's learning curve the, these tools have been fully successfully co-opted and, and turned turned to different purposes and malevolent purposes. Yeah, I mean, I think you had this moment like with the Arab Spring where it seemed like, oh my God, the internet is this amazing force for democratic organizing. It's allowing protesters to find each other. It's allowing people who are dissidents to really come together. And then it failed in most countries. But then I think really importantly for Will's thesis, dictators figured out how to infiltrate and they realized that you can come in and spread false rumors and you can tell people to show up at the wrong place and you can do all kinds of trolling and all the um, kind of false posting and spreading of misinformation and disinformation, the intentional sort that showed up in the American election in 2016. And it sort of We started paying attention to it then. But if you go back a few years, you see these tools being used in other countries very effectively by authoritarian regimes. This is something Zainab Tufeci has written about a lot and kind of presciently. And you just start to see that these are very double-edged swords, these tools. And obviously, we've seen this with the rise of misinformation about COVID worldwide, that you can use seamless, frictionless, rapid spread of information to spread all kinds of messages. And if the corporations that run the social media platforms amplify content that is hot in order to make money, because that's what keeps eyeballs, well, you know, the autocrats are going to figure out how to take advantage of that. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. 
I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. We are joined by Jay Caspian Kang, who is the author of a new book we're going to talk about called The Loneliest Americans. Jay is also a beloved colleague of mine at the New York Times Magazine. He writes a newsletter for the opinion section of the Times, so you can also read him there. And he's the co-host of the podcast Time to Say Goodbye, which he does with Tammy Kim and Andy Liu. Jay, welcome to the GabFest. We're so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with this really interesting paragraph in your book that is in the introduction. You say that the book is about that desperate need to find oneself within the narrative of a country that would rather write you out of it. When I say Asians are the loneliest Americans, I'm not conjuring up a vision of an ancient weather-beaten man playing a one-string violin by the window of a Chinatown tenement. I have no idea if that man is lonely or not. Rather, I'm talking about the loneliness that comes from attempts to assimilate, whether by melting into the white middle class or by creating an elaborate yet ultimately derivative racial identity. The latter serves a double purpose. First and most important, it serves as an explanation to white people. This is who we are, and here are the ways in which we are both different and the same as you. Second, it allows for the illusion of solidarity. By mimicking the language of the black struggle in America, we hope to become legible as a comrade, a fellow traveler, or a person of color. There's an implicit apology to this sort of pleading. We know we don't have it as bad as you, but we also aren't white and need a way to talk about it. I mean, obviously, there's just a ton there to unpack. Um, Are you saying effectively that Asian American identity is so derivative that it doesn't really exist or that it's kind of tissue thin and only exists for like elite aspiring elite people um, is part of the problem here, obviously, that Asian Americans come from different countries in the world, and those national identities might feel much more important to a lot of them. First of all, thank you for reading it so nicely. It's much better than I could read it. And, you know, I, I don't know what it is. My eyesight, Good writing. Is, my eyesight is leaving me at the age of, uh, you know, early 40s. And, um, but I refuse to get glasses. Anyway, it's a good question um, that has a few answers to it, I think. The first is that, yeah, I think that basically what has happened in, is that in 1965, the Hart-Seller Act passes, right? And a ton of, like, 95% of the Asian people in America come post-1965. And that's a big immigration law that allows for more immigration from China, Korea, Japan, et cetera. Right, but also, like, uh, Eastern and and uh, Southern Europe, right, which had been restricted before, too, and, and Africa as well. So really opens up the world, and today is, like, the reason why America looks the way it does, which, you know, I don't know, I find it so strange because it's only, like, a right-wing talking point at this point, right? Um, you know, like, Tucker Carlson will say, like, the Dart Seller Act changed America, and they're they're, that's what they're doing. They've come for you. It's weird because, like, he's right. You know, it, it did change. Uh, it did change America, and so it is strange that how pr- on the progressive side, especially on the academic side, that's not really how histories are built, or that's not how like sort of con- concepts of a people are built, right? They they build it more through history. And the way they build it through history is through stringing through events that are traumatic in the lives of those people. And so for Asian Americans, it's like, well, we start with Chinese exclusion, and then we go to um, you know, lynchings that were happening in the West. And then we go to, uh, you know, then we skip forward to like the 1960s and the radical 1960s. Like, you know, like, and we say, these, this is what Asian America is. But for those 95% of people who came post 1965, like the vast majority of them just like, I don't know what any of those things are. You know, they, they don't have any relevance in my life. Like, what are you talking about Chinese exclusion? I'm here now. And also my grandparents were like, you know, great, great grand, grandparents or whatever. were in Korea at the time, like doesn't have any real relevance to me. And so um, I don't even know if it's like paper thin at that point. It's just sort of a hodgepodge of different things that I would say that the majority of the people who are supposed to be in that, you know, in that group don't really believe in. And so it's just something that's always been confusing to me more than anything. What interests me about Hart Seller in the passage that Emily just read, and I think an argument you make, which is Hart Seller comes along in 1965 um, it comes after the Civil Rights Act. There is sometimes this feeling as if, like, well, the whole civil rights movement, you know, opened up the doors for Asian immigration. 
does that narrative contribute to what you're saying, which is a kind of simplifying of the story? And therefore, there are real disadvantages to making um, uh, opportunities for Asian Americans seem to be the kind of result of the civil rights movement. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, Jia Lin Yang, who works at the Times, wrote a great book about this and um, just came out, I think, a year and a half ago about uh, the Hart Seller Act. And if you read that book and if you read, you know, the scholarship around Hart Seller, it's really not about the extension of the civil rights movement, right? That is like a thing that is said to promote it, basically, just being like, oh, yeah, you know, like we did this great civil rights thing and now it's time to do it. To, But obviously the question is what's happening in Asia at the time, right? If you if you expand the borders of what you're thinking about beyond the United States, then there's a, you know, there's a lot of wars going on in Asia, right? 1965 is a time when, you know, people are very much thinking about uh, like geopolitics and the encroachment of communism or whatever, right? And that there's also massive propaganda campaigns going on in Asia at the time that say that, like, why would you ever trust the United States when their racist immigration policies won't even let you in the country, right? Like, that's the big, that is a recurring theme that is going broadcast out throughout Asia. And uh, the United States at that point, I think, decided, you know, a lot, if you read the, the speeches in Congress, you read what people are saying, you're just like, look, we got to let some of them in, you know? And then, and then their next thought was like, and, you know, you can read this from like what RFK is saying at the time, what Lyndon Johnson is saying at the time, where they're like, listen, we'll just let about, you know, they're not really going to come. We're just going to make it legal for them to come. So don't worry. Like, and that, that's part of the speech that what, and, you know, they're wrong, right? Every, like uh, everybody came, you know, millions and millions of people came. And uh, that's, you know, that's why my parents, you know, that's why like most of the, I don't know if you walk around, if you have Asian friends, like I guarantee the vast majority of them are here because of that. Like that sort of, it, it's almost like a diplomatic miscalculation on the part of the Democrats in 1965. But I think that the the sort of spillover effect from the civil rights movement is probably a bit overstated at this point. Jay, first of all, congratulations on writing a book without a subtitle, which is just so, it is so hard to write a nonfiction <laughs> book these days without a subtitle. It's like everyone needs you to do the subtitle so they know what the book is about. They can be like, oh, that's what he's arguing. Um, the My question is about the this term Asian Americans and whether it is, is it possible, is it right to think of this as a coherent category? You have immigrants from half of the world from wildly different cultures, language groups. Um, what, what are the, like the costs and benefits of grouping people from this, 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 you know, huge swath of the world in a single category of Asian Americans? Well, I think that there is this belief and it started and, you know, it starts with people who be, who were here before 1965 that, the general idea behind it was that there was a student movement and the idea was to sort of uh, organize everyone who is not organized at the time, right? And this is happening in the late 60s. And it's a lot of students whose parents and families have been here uh, for generations. And so, you know, for, there's a lot of Japanese students involved in this, right? Like a lot of those Japanese students were interned or their families were interned. Uh, the Chinese-American families like they're the ones who sort of slip through during the time of exclusion. They, they're, or, or they go all the way back to the gold rush and their families know this history of violence very well. And so during that period of time, it made sense to have like a coherent ideology or a coherent sort of uh, identity that's based on, hey, there's only like seven of me and there's four of you. So what if we, what if we, and we kind of look the same? So why don't we join forces here, right? We're both called Oriental and let's make this thing called Asian American. Um, this is happening at like San Francisco State, UC Berkeley in the 1960s. And that legacy, you know, and which is sort of spread through ethnic studies programs, but also sort of becomes this, uh, you know, in the same way that I think that like something like Latinx becomes part of like a spoken political and the media language before it's actually f adopted by the people itself, right? Like Asian American almost becomes that throughout the 60s, late 60s and the early 70s, where it's a term that's used a lot that I don't think a lot of people who are coming to the United States really have that much fealty to or even awareness of. Its borders change by about a billion people depending on how you define it, right? Like if you say, are South Asian people 
Asian, you know, then you have like 1.3 billion more people. If you say, well, no, they're South Asian then, or they're brown, like there's all these sorts of different ways in which it's characterized. And yeah, I think it's led to a lot of sort of incoherence. But the reason why it persists is because I think there are people who want it to be a political identity, but I'm not sure if the people who want it to be a political identity really have much idea on what that political identity would be. You know, I don't know. I, I've, I've been thinking about this for like 10 years now, and I can't really think about what, you know, I still ha don't have a good answer to that. <laughs> so, Jay, what I wonder is there, and I may just be asking you to do something you were just saying you've been having trouble doing, so I apologize. But so the week or so ago, Pew put out a political typology of what I spent a lot of time thinking about, which is political differences. And we talk about Republicans and Democrats, and they point out there are really nine different gradations. And some of them are quite different within the Republican Party. For example, you have a corporate wing, and then you have another wing that says corporations are like destroying America. And yet they are called Republicans and they vote for the same people. And I wondered if there is a uh, structure you've come up with that breaks apart Asian Americans into component groups that allows some way of grouping, but that doesn't do the, you know, the messy thing of just having one group. Uh, yeah, I think that if you think the biggest change is generational, right? Between first generation, second generation immigrants, um, the second generation is much more liberal, right? much more votes Democrat at a much higher rate. The older generation tends to be much more, I don't know, bootstrapping. I mean, that makes sense, right? That's why you come to the United States in some ways. And um, if you come to the United States and perhaps you buy into some of the ideas about America, and also, you know, there's a good chance that nobody really helped you very much if you're an immig Asian immigrant who came to the United States, right? Like, uh, you know, there's not that much concern about that population. And so uh, I think that generationally is the most important way to think about it. But I also think that um, if you're trying to group people politically now, if you're trying to group people more anthropologically or socially and say, like, well, what are the different groups? The class divide is really the way to go. Asian Americans are either rich or they're poor. You know, they have the biggest income disparity of any racial group in America. You can go into Google, you can see a lot of Asian American people, right? Um, now, you might say they're not the CEO of, well, I guess they are the CEO of Google at this point, but, you know, um, I don't even know how that works, right? But, like, um, and, then you, and then you go to uh, Chinatown in New York City, you go to Sunset Park in New York City, and you walk around, and you're like, these are not, these are not rich people. Again, like there's something where the identity, when speaking about the identity, you're really just talking about the wealthy people, right? And you've sort of not talked about the person who delivered your dinner, for example. And so I don't know if, if those are useful categories, but I do think that those are the actual categories. When talking about Asian America, is something that, you know, the book tries to do, I guess is something I've tried to do. You know, if you don't think about it in terms of class and you end up with a group that you know, in some ways, it's not particularly all that sympathetic politically. A few weeks ago, I think when your book came out, you were ruining what you saw as a likely development that most of the people who would review your book would be also Asian American. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> that people outside of this, um, in your view, kind of problematic group identity would not be the people kind of introducing the book to the world. It was part of what made me want to have you on the show. But I just wonder how that's actually played out and what your initial objection was about. I think most of the people who have re reviewed the book are still Asian. Um, you know, someone reviewed the book in Chicago Tribune who was white. It was interesting because, you know, it's a different perspective. Well, there's two things that happened. The first is that, look, like in the book it, review industry, I think that um, it's the problem is not race itself necessarily it's that within within if you're part of like a minority group the people that editors will go out to look for for to review these books is actually a very small group of people you know like if they're like okay we need an asian person to review this book there's like seven people i'm one of them you know if there's an asian book that comes out you know people are like do you want to review this book and just say like, i don't know anything about this topic and this person is like you know vietnamese and i don't know anything. <laughs> you know like it's just weird and i'm just like i don't know why do you get like somebody else to provide a type of perspective about it and so generally what you have is you have a, a small group of people who are kind of discussing internal stuff you know, like not and not necessarily internal to that group, but internal to the industry, 
right? And um, and that is like, I think that that is interesting to me as somebody who works in that industry. In this industry, it might be interesting to other people, but it, you know, I don't know if it's interesting to anybody else. I don't think that's actually happened with my book. I think some of the, the reviews have been actually quite interesting, and and you know, a couple of them have been actually quite well-written, argued, even for people who might disagree with a lot of the book. But at the same time, I think my idea was that I don't get why we sort of proceed this way, right? Like, I, I feel like the main reason behind it is that people don't want to get canceled if they say something bad about a book and they're not the same race as somebody, and it gives people a little bit of protection uh, against that type of thing. There's a sort of magical assumption behind it that if the person is of the same thing, that they must have some secret insight into the person or the book that they can share with the white readership, which I also find kind of a wrong, you know, generally, and b like mildly offensive, <laughs> you know, like you know, it's sort of like, hey, do that Asian talk with each other, you know, <laughs> like um, it's like I don't know what that is. And then the last part of it, I think, is that it really limits the conversation around the book to to questions of identity only, you know? It, it, this book has a lot about class in it. It has a lot about how cities are built. It has a lot about food in it. And the people who are reading or writing the reviews also understand the game in a certain way, right? And so they tend to write about the types of things that they think they've been chosen to write about. And yeah, that sort of ends up with the same type of thing being written over and over again. I've seen it with a lot of books and I know a lot of people are frustrated with it. I wish that like, I don't know. I wish there was like a lot of Latino reviewers of this book who could talk about their, you know, like immigration and the parallels and, and the differences. Um, I think Jewish, right. You know, like a lot of the best responses I've gotten are from Jewish uh, readers who have said, Hey, a lot of this feels pretty resonant to me. And some of it doesn't like those are, those are capacious, types of conversations that should happen around the book, whether positive or negative about the book itself. And I think we've limited a lot of those out. Well, I definitely responded to it partly as a Jewish American feeling, like you said, there are some things that really resonate this idea that there's all this American history and actually it has like nothing to do with my family. <laughs> like we okay. just weren't there for that part. But then also the sense that, um, you know, there's a comfort in having a group identity, even if it's kind of manufactured. And I actually wonder if there, I mean, you say in the book that you feel like the Black American struggle is different, but it also obviously has fissures in it and people got here at different times and it covers lots of different countries. I do think it is different in terms of, like, I do think the number of people matters, right? So the majority of, of Black Americans are descendants of slaves, right? Mm -hmm. um, something like 5 to 6% of Asian Americans were here prior to 1965, right? Or their families were here prior to 1965. And so, um, and then, you know, the black struggle, civil rights, reconstruction, that history is one that is deeply ingrained in all of the United States, right? And that it's one that is lived through people's families. They can trace it back. I just think that when you have an identity that almost nobody believes in, it does create a different type of dynamic than one that would also say, hey, we have contradictions in our, in our, uh, in our history, too. We have people who come in and, you know, they identify for certain reasons. That's great, you know, but um, I don't know. I think it's just like at some point, how many people are we talking about is, is a relevant question. Point well taken. Jay Caspian Kang, thank you so much for coming on the show. To our listeners, I truly recommend Jay's newsletter. He is writing and thinking about race and education in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, so you should check it out. Jay, thanks so much. Thank you. Now let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you are uh, preparing a Thanksgiving cocktail this weekend, a pre-Thanksgiving cocktail as you sit down with your long list of cooking tasks uh, and you have a drink and start cooking and chatting, what are you going to be chattering about? Oh my God, this story about the exoneration of two of the men who were convicted of killing Malcolm X is so crazy and interesting. You know, I have so many questions. Like, what does this mean about what the FBI knew at the time? Why did these two people go down for this killing? There is a third person who confessed to the killing um, and had always said that these other two men were innocent. And then I'm 
also fascinated by the role of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in this. So Cy Vance, he's about to leave office. This is obviously one of the big announcements he's making before he goes. And it really seemed what prompted this reinvestigation was a documentary and a book that, you know, a bunch of non-professionals really pushed for reopening this case. And that's just such an interesting development in, you know, the land of prosecutors who are willing to revisit past convictions. And to see this, you know, phenomenon that I've been tracking from this other point of view play out with like such epic historical significance was just totally crazy and interesting to me. So I can't wait to read more about this. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Um, I have a kind of double chatter. One is about a book called the the Faber book Faber F A B E R book of reportage, um, and it's an amazing collection of, well, reportage. Um, but it goes back all the way to um, you know the beginning of time, fifty five B C, and that kind of thing. Anyway, one of the entries they're all very short little entries slices of reporting of real of real life and one of them is about religious observances in Dunkirk in 1662 mm. and it writes about these monks um, and basically the monks and their vow of poverty and relationship with God put themselves in the hands of the citizenry and so basically they would accept alms and that's how they ate I mean basically it was your duty as a religious person in the in the community to feed the monks but sometimes people would drop their um, wouldn't exactly keep the standards up. And so as, when that happened um, and they didn't, um, you know, hold up to their ob- obligation, they rang the starving bell. And when the starving bell was rung uh, by the monks, then people would hurry over to the abbey and, you know, give them a pot roast or something because they knew they'd really gotten to the point where they were actually having to uh, ring the starving bell. So anytime you're hungry, go ahead and ring the starving bell. The second thing is that I've been finally finishing The Way We Live Now, which I read about three quarters of by Anthony Trollope uh, many years ago and then never quite finished it. And I've been delighted in finishing it. And one of the delights, as people know, is sometimes I listen to the audiobook while I'm doing some other task. Timothy West is the narrator narrator for The Way We Live Now. He, Timothy West is also the narrator of lots of Tolkien and Shakespeare and Stoppard and other things. He's amazing. Just go listen to Timothy West for the sake of it, and it's just a delight. Trollops, The Way We Live Now, it feels like you're reading punditry about the the current news cycle, which is great in its own terms, but then Timothy West makes it even better. My chatter, it's a triple chatter. John was double. Well, I believe in the Treaty that? of Kent, it was determined that triple <laughs> chatters are, um, are uh, not good. No, no, every... Every man born of a living woman is entitled once every three years to do a triple chatter. <laughs> is that Macbeth? Uh, it is man of it man. Very yes, Macbethian. The man who's born of woman. Yeah. Okay. Till fucking right, Burnham Wood on, comes chatter. to Dunsinane. This is. Uh... I shall not quake with fear. Lay on Macduff. The first one is uh, this really interesting piece in the New York Times by Jeffrey Leavenworth on Josephite marriage. Did you guys see this? It was so crazy. So Jeffrey Leavenworth wrote a story about his parents' marriage. His parents had been married in the 50s, maybe the 50s or early 60s, and it turned out at some point in after they'd had four children, their father converted to Catholicism, and uh, at this point he's in his mid-40s. But he'd had an earlier marriage. He'd been married before he'd married Jeffrey Leavenworth's mother. And he wanted to get that marriage annulled. And the Catholic Church refused to annul his previous marriage and said, in fact, that he was now living in a kind of illegitimate marriage with his current wife, with whom he had four children. And they said he could continue it if he had what was called a Josephite marriage, if they lived as brother and sister. So his parents, who'd had this marriage, you know, a regular marriage, got twin beds and like spent the next 10 years of their marriage living. It was so important to them that they live in the good graces of the church. It was so important to them that they were willing to endure this sexless, touchless marriage. And then the previous wife, the original wife died and that made him a widower. And he was then able to remarry his, his actual wife. And 
and return. But it's this idea of this thing that Josephite marriage is so fascinating. Anyway, check it out in the Times. Uh, the other two quick ones, just Atlas Obscura, my old dear employer, has a new iPhone app, and it's fantastic. If you like Atlas Obscura, check out the iPhone app. It's really easy to use and fun and playful and super, super useful if you're out traveling. And my current place, CityCast, if you are in Houston, the CityCast Houston podcast has launched. It's a morning podcast about all that's going on in Houston. It's great. Our host, Lisa Gray, is so vivid and wonderful, knows everything about Houston. Check it out at houston.citycast.fm. That sounds mm. great. Yeah, it is great. Listeners, you sent us lovely chatters again this week, and you tweet them to us at SlateGabFest. There have been so many good ones. This is another animal-related one. It's from Melissa Osipek. Hi, Slate Political Gabfest. This is Melissa Osipek from Champaign, Illinois, sharing a listener chatter of a tweet I saw from Ferris Jabber of a wild fox stopping and listening to a banjo player. Um, I thought this would make for a good chatter because I think it relates to so many things that so many of you and your listeners are interested in, notably the power of music, the beauty of nature, and the relationship between those two wonderful things. Um, I recommend checking it out if you can. It is really so lovely and so simple and um, really brightened my week. You guys check it out. It's so freaking charming. No, it's, I can't It's just wait 35 seconds long. So it's excellent. great. Foxes are the most beautiful animals. They are so beautiful. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas, managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabfest. Tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Vazlon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So we have our conundrum show coming up soon, and we have so many great conundrums. Thank you for sending them. And I had a conundrum and uh, that I wanted us to do, and I was just like, hell, we'll just do it as a Slate Plus segment because we, there are too many good conundrums of yours to do on the conundrum show anyway. So I was just thinking, uh, this is, this is I, I'll, I'll caveat this in a second, but the basic question is, who is the most useful friend to have? Like, is it a doctor, a car mechanic, a judge, a billionaire, a celebrity, a dog walker, someone who owns a pickup truck, a notary? And it was the, the purpose of friends is not to be useful. The purpose of friends is to, you know, create community and love and and care. But you, and yet and occasionally yet. you do run across a friend who's really useful to you. And and hopefully you are that friend to other people that you are really useful to your friends in some way. And I wanted your guys's take on you know, what's the most useful kind of friend to have? I am going on the nurse doctor path. And the reason for that, I confess, is that I don't actually have a doctor, which I know is like ridiculous. And I've lived in New Haven for a really long time. Wait, ever? No, I of course had a pediatrician when I was growing up. And when I was having babies, I had an OBGYN. But <laughs> I somehow have not had an internist for a really long time. Like... I don't know, possibly like 20 years. And so... That's what I meant by ever. Yeah. So it's... I do have a nurse midwife, but I haven't seen her in a really long time either because I'm not having babies anymore. So as a result, if there is someone who can like look at your stitches about... How'd you get stitches? How'd you get stitches without a doctor? Well, (laughs) no, I mean, you... So, or it's more like looking at the cut to decide whether you have to go to the emergency room, right? Are you you just a doctor, you might have to do that. Things Are you just like at that. home whipping up poultices and that kind of stuff? I mean, I feel we, like had, we a had a whole poultice show. show. Poultices. I mean, effectively, it's kind of yes. And so it's really helpful if someone can just like look and make sure that you're not going to die. I'm a million percent with you. You guys know I have a really great dear friend who's a doctor, uh, Mary. I hope you're listening. Hello, Mary. And she is always willing to give the kids a quick once over, check if it's strep, you know, look at look at this wound, that wound, give a second opinion if you have been to the doctor and the doctor said something you don't like. It saves, it saves so much time. So much time and money, but so much time. Mostly it saves time. But on the other hand, my ex brother in law 
very handy, very handy person, loves to be handy. And he would always come to our house and would just fix all the little fiddly things that I just couldn't be bothered or didn't know how to fix, you know, this little bit of plumbing or that little bit of electricity. So a, a very handy person is also who likes to be handy is also a really great person to have. I totally agree. But you know what I've discovered just in the last few years? My husband is that person. And I did not know this about him. And now he fixes everything. Like, just Has in it rekindled your marriage? Wait. They're awesome. so sexy. He kind of hid this talent for I a have long some, time. I have some questions to ask here. First of all, what, what how handy are we talking about here? I mean, I mean, he fixes, like... I don't know. He like, well, first of all, he's fixed, really fixed, like two toilets in the house, like had to really like put in new parts. But there are other things, too, where he's like soldered things. I mean, I just like I hooked up electricity. Yeah. We have this elliptical machine. So now, see, that this is important. Anybody who that for me, electricity is the dev- I mean, I've soldered things, although I almost once burned down the house because. <laughs> I used to solder together my computer parts, and um, we, my, when I was living with my dad, and we went away for the weekend, and I came back, oh, and the soldering iron, which oh I had God. balanced on something, oh, was still on. How did the house not burn? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hey, listeners, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Slate is now selling audiobooks, and one book for sale is Emily's latest. Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. What follows is a special excerpt of the audiobook. If you like what you hear, get your copy at slate.com slash gabfestbooks. Use promo code EMILY to save an additional 20% off if you buy before December 1st. That's slate.com slash gabfestbooks. Use promo code EMILY. The gun was an offering. Kevin heard about it around midnight on a May evening. He'd gone to the corner store to buy a single cigarette and was heading back to his high-rise in a housing project in Brownsville, a neighborhood in the middle of Brooklyn. The people he'd grown up with were often out at night, and he saw a nod of them, young men around his age, 20, hanging out by a pair of green benches in a grassy spot near his building. As they swapped greetings, Kevin's friend Mason flicked his eyes at a plastic shopping bag on the ground, lying there like a piece of trash. We got the John, he said. John could stand for a lot of things, a pair of shoes, a person. But Kevin knew exactly what Mason meant. There was a gun in that bag. I know things are crazy for y'all here, Mason said. So I got this for you. The police were a frequent presence around the projects, so no one picked up the bag or asked to see the gun. Kevin said his goodbyes and started walking away in the alert and fluid way he had, shoulders back and arms swinging, tall and lean and young, his hair pulled back in a ponytail, and his gray hoodie sweatshirt zipped, always aware of where he was but trying not to look over his shoulder. It was important not to look skittish, not around his friends, and not if the police were watching. But Kevin also didn't want to hang around with a weapon lying at his feet. He didn't want the trouble a gun brought. Kevin's housing project, a cluster of brick buildings, was one of 18 in Brownsville, making the neighborhood one of the densest concentrations of public housing in the country, with more than 60,000 people packed into 1.2 square miles. The project could feel like a small town, in an old-fashioned way. It had its own recreation center and known personalities and raffish identity. Kevin got a laugh out of the nicknames for the loudmouths or tough guys, Kool-Aid and Lilhead and Ojilock. He'd lived there his whole life, with his older sister and her two-year-old daughter, his younger brother and his mother, who'd raised her kids mostly on her own, working retail jobs and caring for the elderly and disabled. The average rent in the Brownsville projects was $430 a month. Families tended to stay for years once they got off the waiting list for an apartment. We stick together, Kevin said. We went to school together. Your apartment might be on top of mine. Your mom might have babysat me. On a good day, 
The project's residents would come outside to play music and catch up. You knew it was spring when older people brought small towels to sit on and raised their faces to the sun. That kind of day? I'm going to be where everyone is, the girls, the mamas, the babies, Kevin said, thinking on it. That kind of day? It's perfect. But Brownsville was also one of New York's most disadvantaged communities, measured by health as well as economic insecurity, and one of its most dangerous. The year Kevin was 12, more than 100 people were shot in and around Brownsville, and another 30 were killed, about half the number in all of Manhattan. Guns were a fact of life. I could find someone with a gun before I could find someone with a diploma, Kevin told me. Over the years, he'd lost people he knew, including close friends. The beefing wasn't mainly between the gangs with well-known names, like the Bloods or the Crips. They existed, but their presence in the neighborhood was fading. More trouble came from menacing rivalries that pitted groups in the projects against their peers in other projects. The conflicts and alliances shifted. But there was one other project in particular that was the main foe of Kevin and his friends. Kevin's father lived in the rival development. He'd moved back in with Kevin's grandmother when he and Kevin's mother split up, back when their children were young. Kevin's dad paid child support regularly, and they talked once in a while. But Kevin hadn't gone over to see him in years. One day, standing on the street outside his building, he gestured toward the windows of his grandmother's apartment, visible a couple of blocks away above the trees. I can't remember what the inside of my Nana's crib looks like he said. The battle lines between the projects were drawn when Kevin's father was growing up, when established gangs fought over territory so they could sell drugs. Kevin didn't know why, and it didn't really matter how the trouble started back in the day. Fresh insults piled on top of old grudges. The reason for a fight or even a shooting could be minor, disrespecting someone on social media or flirting with his girlfriend. Kevin found it disturbing. Most people he knew did. But that wasn't the same as knowing how to end it. There was too much bad blood. He'd learned you could defend a place and your people in it, yet at the same time wish you were anywhere else. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 